0: It's Rusty here, getting ready to fire up part two of my chat with TV presenter and broadcaster Bill Woods, who for a long time headed up Channel 10 Motorsport in Australia. He covered all the big events, so if you haven't already heard part one, make sure you check it out. Some great fun and untold stories from that chapter. I began this second instalment by asking him about his long-term relationship with a Japanese manufacturer, one that's well known for rallying, but Billy's no rally driver. You kindly met me downstairs today um, for for this chat. And I think I saw you drive in in a Subaru. You've had a, a relationship with Subaru for
1: a long time, haven't you? Yeah, they're fantastic people. I, I don't do many things like that because uh, I'm not a corporate kind of guy. But of all the companies I've dealt with, they're just such nice people. You know that yes. because they sponsored our show. That's where it all began. Before Subaru...
0: You did have another commercial relationship, and I'm bringing this up. They stopped making cars in 2012, Saab. But you were a Saab ambassador, and we regularly took the piss out of you, didn't we? You cobbed it from Baz, from us. What did you What did you have? What was 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 it a 900? What did you have in the end? I can't I,
1: remember. I had a, a 93, which actually no. You're right. I had a I had a I had a 900, you're right. I had a nine hundred six cylinder It was actually a bloody good car. I don't care what anyone <laughs> says. It was a nice car. I remember... Oh, I shouldn't say these things. I, ba- Matty White and I had a race once <laughs> somewhere in Sydney. It wasn't a street race. It was on a more secluded stretch of road. And it. It. I overtook him at a speed that... Um, he was surprised. He was driving a BMW, and I just wanted to prove to him that the Saab actually had balls. So I overtook him at ridiculous <laughs> speed. Anyway, it's a long time ago. Anyway, um, <clears throat> do not do that at home, kids. But um, anyway, it was such a funny thing because uh, the people who were sort of running Saab at the time, and this this is a funny thing. But just as a matter of coincidence, I met Danny Frawley's wife, Anita, through that relationship, and that's how I got to meet Danny, um, which was so sad just recently, what happened. And um, I... I, uh, first met him at a Saab function in Melbourne. Anyway, uh, at that time, the people who were running it had a thing that, like, let's let's get a motorsport kind of guy to drive the car and talk about the performance aspects of it, because it actually, as much as Top Gear took the piss and, and other people, I actually uh, thought it was quite a good car to drive. And so I drove quite a few, mostly their turbo models. But the six-cylinder that I actually owned, I bought it. I um, uh, finished up selling it years later, but um, it was a good it was a good car. And 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 I I did a story. Story. I did my uh, uh, provisional racing driver's licence um, with Peter Mc Peter Finlay. Peter Finlay, sorry. Peter, I was not going to say Peter McKay, our mutual friend. Peter Finlay. Uh, I did my mutual uh, provisional racing driver's licence in a Saab 900, which was, you know, we had guys there who'd built their own race cars. You know, there was a guy with an FJ that was all souped up and another guy had this little racing thing. They was, they're they all sedans, though. They weren't uh, open wheelers. But all these young blokes wanting to become race drivers and they had really cool little cars. And, and I had this Saab 900. That was hilarious. And I didn't finish last in the official race we did. I had a bad start. And I chased this guy down and waited for him to make a mistake, outbreaked him, and I, I got up to ninth place out of ten drivers or something at the end. And uh, th- I thought I did pretty well considering th- the lack of power. Uh, and it was a front-wheel drive all those things. Anyway, um, but everyone who ever, I ever interviewed uh, in, in, in pit lane in the supercars or any of that stuff who knew would give it to me as soon as I yes. was, well, how's the Saab going, mate? <laughs>
0: We are proof, both of us, about, about commentators, reporters, presenters, maybe not trying to venture off and be racing drivers. It's great for us to experience that side and to try and convey to, to the average Aussie, the average viewer, what it's like. Because the pros, the, the Setons, Cromptons, Scafes, whatever, mm. they make it look like childs, play. they make it look easy. Yeah. But, you know, you and I get this experience of, man, this is, this is hard, but... I successfully yanked a steering wheel off an Aussie racing car at Winton. I kept that somehow. The onboard guys were awesome to me. They kept that secret for three years. And I can still remember we had an end-of-season awards night in 2006 and they played it and Crompton was crying with laughter because, I, you know, I'm going into the final turn at Winton with no steering wheel connected. Anyway, is it true, mate, is it true that you had an incident in a racing car at Amaru and if so what happened because I don't reckon this has ever heard the light of day uh,
1: yeah I did I crashed a, <laughs> I crashed a, uh, a uh, Formula Ford or a Formula Holden a Formula Holden it was a Formula Holden <laughs> I'd driven Formula Fords um, on a number of occasions for various reasons and um, and look, don't get me don't get me wrong. I have no pretense to be any good at race driving. I just drove them for fun at my own sort of capability, um, and I, you know, never had any pretensions to be any good at it. But I wanted to learn about what I was doing, and you know, and, and you know, Rusty, I was never. Uh, a mechanical motorsport enthusiast i was much more interested in the human side of things i could never build my own car i used to service my own car but nothing more than that i was not into assembling vehicles i just didn't have that kind of engineering bent um, and i, lo- I and, love the human side mate so keep going i know yeah where you're. And, and and that's you know and that's and that's but that's why we have the cromptons and those people to sort of explain all that stuff uh, in more detail and and um, but anyway um <laughs> Yeah, Peter, again, it was Peter Finlay, the poor bugger. He just bought a Formula Holden. And I must have put years on that bloke's life. <laughs> <laughs> was it at Amaru? We were... Yeah it was at Amaru it was at Amaru before, the, you know, before they shut it down and you know that um, uh, the back straight and then you go into that hard right hander oh, and there's boy. a concrete wall and anyway I remember Peter saying to me, I'm an idiot, I remember him saying to me if you do get into any trouble at all don't be a bloody hero and try and drive out of it, <laughs> put the brakes on and just let it all settle down and come to a halt and it's funny you know but I can't remember who it was but I, just, I heard one of the Formula One drivers saying that just the other day <laughs> <laughs> in a so even the top guys are still doing it anyway (laughs) and I come up to this to this the to the the stop go corner and um, I I braked quite well and I just got on the gas a little bit early and this thing he'd only just bought it he hadn't really tuned it and it was a little bit sensitive that's my story and I'm sticking to it anyway it was very powerful and very sensitive I got on the gas a bit early and I spun it and, in, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, yeah, I'm really good here. I can just drive out of this. I won't have to just, you know, I'll try and get out of it. Spun it into the wall. And luckily, it wasn't that bad a crash. I mean, um, I eventually, you know, this all happens in a split second, but my brain eventually thought, you idiot, break. But by all, by that time it was too late. Anyway, I, I crumpled up the nose. I didn't hurt myself or anything. Bit of you know, bit of a jolt, bit of a scare. But um, anyway, you have to tell the bosses at work what you do. Yeah, it cost Channel Ten seven thousand oh, dollars. How did that conversation go? Uh, with me on my knees pleading. <laughs> I. Um, yeah, I must say, the bloke you mentioned earlier, David White, was fantastic about it. Uh, he sort of put it down to, uh, I don't know how he wrote that off, on the budget. Um, I, ho- I hope I bought him a few dinners for it. I can't remember, to be honest. In the broadcast of, of some of the events that we've done over, over
0: time, mate, perhaps people don't realise it takes an army. You know, at, at Bathurst, it can be anywhere between 260 to 300 people to make that whole thing Go. It yeah. looks seamless. It isn't always seamless behind the scenes, but that's what it takes, doesn't it?
1: Ah, uh, yeah. And and look, I I don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, we, we might have stayed in nice hotels, and as a commentary team, we were a core unit. We we hung together. Um, it, it's impossible for all two hundred and fifty people to hang together all the time. Um, and and we did it for a reason because all the social time we spent together, a lot of that time was spent discussing. Our, yes. our you know, correlating information. Yes. Uh, I heard this in pit lane. Do you think this? Do you think the setup's going to be this? What, blah, blah, blah. Everyone would be trading information and uh, you might come up with something we'd say, well, Rusty, tomorrow, um, let's do that. Let's do something on that. So we were working all the time and we were genuinely enthusiastic about our jobs and that's part of the reason why I think the end product was pretty good. But I must say, um, without all those other people you know, being all those links in the chain. And and fortunately, we would get a chance to see them because we'd have lunch with them and breakfast with them uh, at the track. And we'd often sit with the camera crews and and other people as part of the process. And I think that's a really important thing, no matter what you're doing in life, uh, is to appreciate the people who are working around you, even though they might have a lower ranking or pay grade or whatever you... You call it um, is to appreciate what they do make sure they feel part of the team and also you know if they're so inclined um, give them the feeling that if they want to do what you're doing or what you know the producer's doing at some other time then they've got the ability and the opportunity to do it. They really were a,
0: a family mate it was a, a, yeah. it's a period of my life like you that that I cherish and that it's probably an overused word but there was great kind of um, camaraderie there and for people listening there are some people that work behind the scenes that you've perhaps never heard of that are as passionate mm. and properly into it whether it's bikes or cars um, that you will ever meet there they are genuine um, enthusiasts along the way our it's an always evolving game broadcasting we're always trying new things graphics cameras whatever it might be to enhance the broadcast and and we had you know scotty young who's now the um the head of formula one for sky and in, in the uk he was with us mm. and i can remember him pioneering the bunnings forest stage coverage the the rally stuff had largely um been super special orientated and then they would get various bits of vision from the forest but a live coverage of a stage in the forest was something pretty pretty groundbreaking and so you and baz were there was a hosting position for you and a Um, kind of finish line uh, area where I think you would um, would do some crosses. Mark Osler and I were dispatched, I think, to the start line. And in the challenge of doing all that, we had a couple of funny things happen. Firstly, Mark Osler was on a cabled microphone And we, we crossed to him, but it wasn't quite long enough, the cable to stretch to the doors. He's trying to reach down to the possum born, and it was like, you know, like, that, that's as far as it'll go. We had to sort of reset that. That was one funny thing. And then this proves how professional you are, how, how professional Baz Uh, Was and and even even Lee Diffie, we came out of a commercial break and and something happened. You guys were relocating from one position to another Mm. and you you weren't quite there at the end of the commercial break and Lee commentated blind. He wasn't in a position where he could see a monitor. That's right. They had a whole range of of, um, replays and things until you guys could get in place and they just kept saying to him through his ears, hey, okay. Uh, uh, that's Colin McRae on screen now through the water and that sounds and he did it blind mate didn't he?
1: yeah he stood next to uh, a truck yeah. with a with a basically a white um, uh, painted Side, um, so that there was nothing to distract him, yep. uh, and that basically he could, had nothing, he could close his eyes, I think, in some uh, cases, and just visualise what they were telling him was going on, yep. um, and then r- convey that to the thing. Yeah, it was a masterful piece of commentary, there's no doubt about it. We'll, we'll always remember it. I mean, uh, and I felt so for him because we we're scrambling something, yeah, we were trying to get from one position to another, and it was further away, and the things weren't ready when they were supposed to be. So, yeah, that's some crazy stuff. Uh, used to go on in those days it, you just reminded me um, remember the scooter crash up at uh, yeah, the, the Gold Coast, Coast?
0: I do not know if you wanted to share that we, we were all staying uh, uh, my wife my now wife came with me because it was too good to refuse I think we were staying at the Versace and we had to ride from the hotel down to where the, uh, the park was, directly opposite, kind of where the start-finish line at Indy mm-hmm. is. And our, our outside broadcast truck used to be
1: there, and we would ride scooters every day. Yeah, wouldn't they? Yep, and it was all my own work, uh, I must admit. much. <laughs> about, I'm just glad Peter Finlay didn't lend me the scooter. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there was about four of us. There was Marco, there was uh, uh, one of our great producers, Michael Heaton. Yeah. I'm not sure if Daryl was there. He would have been coming from home. He would he lived been on- coming from home. So somebody else was there um, anyway uh, and there was four of us and we, we finished up being separated by some traffic circumstances, a roundabout or something and there was two. It was like the Grand Prix riding to work though, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, was a little bit. Perfectly legal. We didn't, we, yeah, we, one of those little, um, I think they were governed or something too. They, they weren't very powerful scooters. Anyway, um, we got separated. So there's two in front and two in the back and then I got separated from the front three and I remember that we we always had trouble merging onto the the, the Gold, I think it's the Gold Coast Highway at that point, um, and and um, I was actually. Concentrating on seeing where there was a gap in the traffic so I could veer, uh, turn left and merge. But, and, and I saw the three guys ahead of me, and I must say I saw two of them ride off, and I'd assumed all three had ridden off and got into their spots and, and didn't realise that Michael Heaton had not taken the opportunity or, or, or was a bit cautious and was still parked waiting for his chance. And all I'm doing is looking at the traffic to see where the gap was and uh, thinking there's nothing ahead of me. And I'm starting to turn left, uh, getting ready to merge. And I actually gunned it and went straight into the back of Hedo's scooter and (laughs) went cartwheeling over the top of his... I I literally went right over the top of Hedo. Thank God. The wheel, my front wheel, hit his rear wheel, smack on, dead on. There was no... Um, it just stopped dead. If I'd run up the side of him, I could have busted his leg easy or done some serious injury. As it turned out, he just copped the bump from behind and my scooter just crumpled and I went cartwheeling over the top. The police person was a woman, policewoman who walked over um, or ran over, <coughs> saw me on the ground. She said, jeez, <coughs> you were airborne for a while. And <laughs> I said, well, I have done parachuting. But (laughs) anyway, uh, there was a dent in the helmet. I'd hit the ground pretty hard. I couldn't believe there was barely a mark on me. I was so bloody lucky. I got up, I was a bit sore, but all I could think of was we're on air in about an hour, so I had to get to work. Um... Smashed my sunnies and yeah, just off we went. You were a total pro, mate, because we, it was the Sunday, I think, of, of race day. It, at was, the, race the, day, it yeah. was It was
0: for the for the indie race too, wasn't
1: it? So yeah, yeah. So anyway, it was all sorted out. I, I, I think it was deemed a racing incident. No yeah. one got arrested. <laughs> I wasn't black flagged or anything. I, I, um, (laughs) I don't think. Yeah, I don't think there was anything they could charge me with. I'm not sure. It was just an accident, and um, it was all sorted out. And thankfully, Hito went on to produce us in MotoGP, and he's never lost his love of
0: motorcycles. He he loves them. uh, Lost his love for me
1: for a while, but.
0: The rotary engine was an early type of internal combustion engine in which the crankshaft remained stationary in operation, with the entire crankcase and its attached cylinders rotating around it as a unit. But the most special part about it is the sound it makes. Right? You did a book. Um, I should do the the John Laws, ring the, the bell here, blatant plug, but it's for a good reason, mate. It's for a good reason. You've done a couple of books, for that matter. Yeah. The first one that springs to mind um, is called Legends of Speed, And it contains some great interviews and and stories of people that have now sadly left us in in many ways and and others that have finished their careers, uh, Mark Webber who stopped racing in Formula One and things like that. What for you were the kind of nuggets that you unearthed that you perhaps didn't know about or the stories that really perhaps impressed
1: you? Okay, well, the, the, the the single greatest thing about it was when HarperCollins commissioned me to write the book, um, their concept was pick, say, 20 drivers Mm -hmm. and do separate chapters on each one. And that all seemed fairly straightforward and, and reasonable. But when I started to research it, something started to emerge that there was a narrative that linked all the drivers, not just those 20, but all the others who were just sort of on the edge of that greatness so to speak or notoriety put it that way um so it it actually alleviated a big problem for me because i then went to all the experts that you and i work with you know your cromptons john smales peter mckay all those sort of guys and i i had a chat with them about who should i include in this list of drivers and and ultimately and of course there was a lot of conjecture about because as you well know and we all know there were there are people who are actually terrific drivers, but because they necess- didn't necessarily get in the right car or bike, or actually it was only drivers, it wasn't on bikes, but um, because they didn't necessarily get in the right machinery, they, they, they probably didn't get the notoriety or credibility they deserved and vice versa sometimes. So that was a difficult equation and, and to a degree it's always subjective. Um, but this, this concept that I finished up with actually solved the problem a little bit because what I said to HarperCollins was, this is just one big story. Mm. And all these guys, I could give you 20 drivers, but and I will interview 20, 25 drivers as the main sources of all the information, but bottom line is um, they're all incredibly linked mm. and, and that is a story. So let's not have chapters on individuals. Let's actually tell the story from Tony Gaye's Um, I told the story from two people, basically. It was Tony Gaze and Harry Firth, Mm -hmm. who both uh, were in the Second World War. They served in the Second World War. Harry was a dispatch rider on a motorcycle in the Desert War, and Tony was a fighter ace. Fighter pilot. So the book starts with, with their war experiences to a degree and how their mechanical sympathy and their relationship with, with racing grew from there. Tony was a race driver before the war started. He was interested in race driving and Harry had always been an engineer mechanic, so to speak. Um, and, but they really, I wouldn't say honed their skills, but th- their, their experience in the war very much made them what they were after the war. And then from those two threads... Everybody else is linked, and I'm sure anyone who knows anything about motorsport knows where I'm going with this. You know, Tony Gay is our first Formula One driver, and he gets to meet Brabham and Gardner and, and, and all the guys from there on. And, and Harry, of course, gets to forge his way through Cortina's and then, of course, through Holden the whole production car side of things, but also, as you know, back in the 60s and 50s, the the great drivers were driving all sorts of vehicles. They weren't just driving in Formula One. No one stereotyped anyone in those days. So they all got to meet each other through that cross-pollination of of makes too. Um, And so all these stories emerged where people keep saying how, oh, yeah, and I raced against so-and-so, and I'd go, oh, yeah, well, he's in the book too. Oh, yeah, I've known him for years. I sold him a car. There was a funny one there where Frank Gardner and Frank Maddich had traded a car and they they'd still to that day had disagreed. They had a bit of a dispute over it. I can't remember what it was, but one sold a car to the other. And I said to Frank Matic, what, um, what happened? Frank goes, oh, you know, I was a bit upset with Frank. And I go to Frank Gardner and he says the same thing. So in the book, I'm pretty sure in the book I've actually put both sides of the story because no one could agree. Um, it wasn't a major dispute. It was just, you know, these things happen. Um, and and But apart from that, there was this beautiful story of how everybody knew each other. And I think even Firth and Brabham had had a connection because there was a Grand Prix held at Albert Park where Harry was doing some... I think he did some work on one of Jack's cars or or at least was involved in some way, you know? Um, and, and so... Uh, those two, from those two strands, everybody basically came. It was like the, the roots of a tree, and I just said to the people here, "We've got a great story." And I must admit, the one, the only critical—I'm um, not saying it's the greatest book of all time, but the only critical. Um, thing I've read about it, and I think it's a, 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 val- a valid criticism, is that it's not deep enough. The book could have been twice as deep, and there's a lot of stuff that I only had to deal with superficially, and uh, a guy, the guy who was writing the critique said, look, I nothing against the book, but Bill led me in areas that I wanted to know more about. And I totally agree with that. I mean, you, you know, you've know, you got to draw a line somewhere. And so I'm sure there's areas that the real motorsport fans would have loved to have known more about, but basically in this case I had to keep going and tell the story of how this led to this and, and and on it goes, and uh, obviously there's so many more chapters have been written since then. I think it finished with Marcus Ambrose winning, uh, um, and Mark Mark Webber, as you say, was in Formula One, and um, oh, gee, was he with Jag then? Awesome. Yeah. And Marcus had just won the champ. The the, the, the was it supercars then? Yeah, um, and and so yeah, that that's kind of where it finished, which had been I think 05 or something like that. So yeah, and, and there's been so much more happened since then, obviously. Um, and, and Mark, uh, um, well, Mark, a lot of those guys have gone on to have their own books, which I think is terrific um, because they do thoroughly deserve their own books. We mentioned Baz earlier in the the podcast. You've also had the chance to work
0: alongside the great Neil Crompton during the Formula One coverage. Um, he's agreed to come on the podcast in the, in the oh, episodes right. to come, which will be good. Um, what was it like working with him? Fans uh, are always in great admiration of... Everything about him, and and you got to see firsthand his preparedness and his proper proper passion for it, didn't you?
1: Yeah. In fact, I th- I think we we're a really good fit because he and I were. I wouldn't say opposites, but we were very complementary. As I said before, I was more interested in the human element uh, of motor racing. And and while I'd always make sure that I'd done my homework on, you know, the car preparation, the technology, the development, all those things, I didn't have the depth of understanding um, that, that Cromley had. And um, of course, my job too, as you well know, is basically to be the storyteller as well. You know, I'm the presenter. I'm the link between the fans and the experts. I I don't pretend to be an expert. Um, I might have a lot of knowledge that I've acquired, but I never I never feel like I am going to say, well, Greg Russ is not a good driver because that's not my place to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the good thing about it was with with Neil and I, he had this he has this extraordinary uh, like. 10 more layers of passion for it than I do. Because even though I'm a a lover of motorsport, I'm a lover of a lot of other sports. It's only so far you can go. Um, That's why you work so well together. It was a great balance, mate, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I was happy to, to, as I say, be the link, tell the stories, um, have, you know, all the research I'd done. But for him to to correlate, understand, interpret the research. I could throw it in something like, you know, so-and-so's tweaked the car this weekend. What's going on there, Neil? What's it all about? You know, they've done this. They've adjusted the springs. Why? I, I could present the facts. Neil could interpret them. And, and you know, look, I, I I wouldn't know why. I mean, I'd have a vague idea, you know what I'm saying. You, you, and Neil would have... The, he's got this incredible uh, retention... Uh, of of engineering knowledge as well as all the other stuff. And comes armed with a suitcase of rules and everything that he can put yeah. his hands on, doesn't he? Uh, it? The, the, the ability he's got to recall stuff, and, I, you know, you and I are pretty proud of how we can recall stuff, but honestly, this guy's next level. And admittedly, it comes from a lifetime of specialising in, in the sport. I mean, if you took Neil and asked him to do a commentary on rugby league, it'd be a different story, but that's why Neil's Neil, and that's why he does what he does. We need people like that to complement the people like me. And, and so, yeah, it, 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 it never ceased to amaze me, his retention uh, and, and the, his ability in commentary to listen to team radio and still call a race. And I had the luxury of calling with him. There was one year there when Matty White unexpectedly left Channel 10, went to Channel 7, and I got thrown into the deep end uh, doing commentary for, for the V8s for one season, um, and, and I did a Formula 1 race or two with uh, Murray. Murray. I did one with Murray, um, and I did, I think, one race with Neil, and I did a, a bunch of indies with Neil. Um, but the... Commentary was never something that I was such a jack of all trades, that commentary was never something I, I focused a huge amount of time on because I always felt like it deserved specialists, if you know what I mean. Um, so um, I, I, I certainly did it when I had to and I thoroughly enjoyed it and I loved it, but it was almost like if I was to do it justice over a long period of time, I would have had to sacrifice other aspects of my career. So I was always a bit um, sort of dabbled in it more than anything else. But anyway, Neil was just... just made your job so much easier there wasn't any hole he could dig you out of you know like if 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 you'd sort of uh, were looking at race strategy um, and and you'd made a bad call because you'd Neglected to mention, they'd fueled up at a certain pit stop or something, and you you'd sort of made a bit of a suggestion, you know, anything like that. I'm thinking of on, on, on off the top of my head, but um, if if you'd questioned a strategy or something, they'll go, "Well, actually, no, they fueled up there, so they will they will be right for this next stint." Although just little things like that, and I, I never tried to be judgmental, but if if ever I made um, an error of assumption, put it that way, um, or something like that, or um, or even just set up a scenario like G Neil. This is a fl- what's going on here? He'd steer it the right way. He'd nail way. it. Yeah, He'd yeah. nail it. And and um, and not only that, not only that, but his ability to articulate it. He had a, a wealth of not only knowledge but really interesting phraseology, yep.
0: analogies and things like that. Yeah. Me, yeah,
1: he he could put it together in a very clever way. Would your lovely wife? Leanne,
0: would she let you have a resto project, a car of some kind in later life? Is there a car that you would like to have in the garage one day?
1: Oh, there's a good question. You know what? I've always been the type... I've, I know blogs who've gone and tried to test drive cars at, at, with, at showrooms and whatnot yeah. with absolutely no intention of buying them. Um, I couldn't do that. Mm. I can't do it. I'd only drive a car I could afford. Yeah. Um, but even then, if I could afford... A Porsche or a Ferrari, I am mean, a bit of a Porsche fan, I must admit. Um, I, I, but with a resto, I mean I, I would probably pick i've got to be really careful here <laughs> because I must admit some of the I was up at um, where we Neil and I were doing a Shannon's one year, and I was up at that beautiful museum up on the uh, Bowdens motor. Bowden's Yeah, it was Bowden's and um There were a couple of... There was a Mustang. I'm pretty sure it was a Mustang. And there was that GT Falcon, um, the form finish Mm -hmm. Falcon from 77. Um, That was a nice-looking car. And some of those cars still look good today. Not many do, but some of them do. If I was to do a resto, it might be one of those. I'd hate to betray my roots, so I'd have to throw in a Tirana there. Oh, no, I know. i would put a Monaro in ahead of the Tirana, even though it hasn't got the racing heritage. Um... I'd, I'd, I think a Monaro, um, and it was the one that was around around the same time as I was driving my HQ. Uh, it would have been around that time. Nice. That would have been maybe the first one. That would be probably to, 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 to keep the faith, okay. a Monaro, but I must admit those Fords, those two Fords, yeah. would be right up there. All right. Road rule that drives you mad when you're, you've... Oh, well, a rule or rule, a behaviour? Or a habit. You know? Um, I'm a bit, people might be surprised. I'm, I am, I don't like right lane hoggers, but it's not my biggest beef. What's your biggest beef? My biggest beef is basically aggression and tailgating mm-hmm. and lack of manners. That's actually a lot of beefs, isn't it, really? Yep. Yep. Um, I think, um, lack, lack of, okay, let's combine lack of situational awareness yep. is, which encompasses a few things, but primarily... Ignor- the ignorance of those around you and other possible things is, is, I think, it embraces a lot of stuff, but I think we see it most often in um, lack of courtesy. In other words, when you let someone in to a line of traffic and they don't wave because they have no bloody idea that you've actually done them a favour, mm. um, you see the left lane running out and you know there's a car parked up the road, you can see it, this idiot on your left hasn't seen it. You actually start creating a space for them before they even know mm that they need to change lanes. It's it's those things that I try and encourage people as drivers to do all the time. You you would do it more so now having got your bike licence. You've, you've Even though you originally were a good driver, I'm sure you're even better. Uh, my son said the same thing. He got his bike licence. He rode for a couple of years and he's going to ride again. He had to sell his bike. But he said he, he improved as a driver after being a rider. Um, but just that whole situational awareness thing is a massive problem and it's a combination of... Uh, ignorance and also um, lack of lack of care mm. and consideration for people around you. I think that's two of the biggest things. And tailgating too is, oh, God, I hate tailgating. I just aggression on the road makes me aggressive. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's finish with a funny. I'm going to tell a bit of a yarn here because in our in our chat here, reminiscing about Baz going down memory lane, I've remembered a couple of incidents when we were commentating the bikes. So. To put you in perspective listening, we would do some studio calls at Channel 10 in Piedmont where, where we were. Baz and Billy would do the 500ccs and Daryl and I would do the 250s and then 125s. Baz arrived late, or not late, he came in in the, in the cab from the hotel one night and he'd spilt something all over his jeans. And <laughs> Wardrobe, they were awesome there. They said, okay, go down to Billy's uh, dressing room, uh, get a pair of his jeans, you can, you can wear those kind of thing. Well, you know... You and I are 80, 90 kilos, whatever. Baz was about 50 ringing wet. So that was no good. Where Daryl and I are commentating the, the 125s or 250s, and we lost it because Baz came springing into view behind us. People watching the coverage would never have seen this, but Daryl and I can see it out of the corner of our eye. He's in Jessica Rose denim skirt prancing through the, <laughs> prancing through the studio, which cracked me up. And the shenanigans did not stop there because it was like this little kid that constantly had to try things, test things, experience anything mechanical or whatever and understand it. So they had a scissor lift in the in the studio and the, the height of the studio we used to operate in was quite tall. So to get to the lights in the roof was a, was a challenge. So Daryl and I are calling and the next thing we can hear, meep, meep. <laughs> and he's fired this thing up. He's pulling levers left and right, and the thing is going for the roof. And next thing I hear him say, Oh, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and he's trying to stop it from going through the roof. <laughs> uh,
1: I'm, that's, that's a good point. He, he was, he was, um, he, he did have a mechanical bent that way. He, he was interested in how things worked. He, um, yeah, he, he, was, uh, he was always ready to thrash a high car, that's for sure. Yeah, we, that, that time, oh, do you remember the time at Rally Australia where he got booked for speeding?
0: Yes, I do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was in the car, and I tell you what, it was so funny because they had this it, I don't know whether it was this training day and the WA police or not, but there was this young copper came up. And Barry's just about talked his way out of this speeding fine. Uh, He brought out every trick in the book. It was Rally Australia, we're working for the media, we're presenting WA to the world, so we're doing you a favour, we're paying you a wages. He went the full Monty. Anyway, I think he just about got over the line, but then this big, beer-gutted old cop got out of the car. Swagger's up to the, to the thing and basically I thought oh we're Gonski now because he didn't want to have a bar of it he just wanted to nail Barry's hide so he wrote the ticket anyway and Baz was furious so he complained about it all day and then I think either that night or the next night was the end of our co- coverage and the end of Rally Australia so have the usual big presentation night in the centre of Perth and, and Baz is sitting down and um, who's here from the government then? <laughs> Oh, I don't know, Baz. I think the tourism minister's here. Right. Wait till I get hold of him. Baz goes up to the tourism minister. If you want people coming to your state and putting money into the coffers of your government and the people of Western Australia, stop bloody booking people for speeding on their way to a rally. Oh, it was hilarious. And I'm... He did everything he could, you know. I want you to find out who wrote that
0: ticket and tear it up. For, they made him pay for it, though,
1: didn't they? They did, yeah. Didn't get out too well.
0: Final final <laughs> yarn. We've got to wrap this up. We've, we've had some great old yarns here. Occasionally, because he always tried to get to, to the closest possible parking spot. I can remember yeah. driving into Adelaide one year and there was the pre-marked parking spots. It was... Premier of South Australia, Mr Tony Cochran, you know, it was all laid out. And we drove in on the Thursday and he goes straight to the Premier's parking spot. He goes, he won't be here today, this is fine, he just parked it, (laughs) he parked it straight there. And if ever the security guys stopped him, they would say stuff like, Mr Sheen, Mr Sheen, I I love you, mate, I I know who you are, but but I can't let you park here. And at which point to defuse the situation... He would go, oh, okay, no worries. I'll just back back then. And he'd look over his shoulder, but he'd hit the gas and go straight forward. (laughs) They thought he was backing out of it. And by that stage, he was, you know, a couple of hundred metres up the road. Mate, I've I've, uh, held up your time. You're here at Fox Sports working your way. It's been awesome to catch up with you and and tell some great old yarns, which I'm sure everyone will enjoy. Keep powering with the the riding. You taught me some amazing things during my career, which I, I... uh, appreciate to this day mate you're, you're a, an amazing wordsmith the most um, unflappable presenter I know the calmest bloke in, in that role and you've been great for a number of, uh, of up and comers
1: that have, that have learnt from you along the way so thank you I'm proud of what you've done Rusty you're, you're a goldmine thank you
0: Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One written and presented by me Greg Rust Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcast1australia.com.au. To listen to more episodes, search Rusty's Garage Podcast. Listen for free at podcast1australia.com.au or download the app. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely.